Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. We actually took a pause for Advent season um, to, to uh, uh, took a pause from our sermon series and journey through the book of Exodus. And now we are getting back into that series. And so, um, and, and so we're going to start in, in, a, in a very common place, a place that we all probably are familiar with. Um, but let me, let me just ask a question of you before we get started. Have you, have you ever gone somewhere and uh, maybe it was a day trip, maybe it was a, uh, a week-long vacation, and you just decided that you were going to take it blind. You didn't do any internet searches, um, you, didn't, you didn't look up any uh, places to go, you just said, hey, this is a nice place for us to go, so we're going to jump in the car and we're going to go and we're going to experience it. Um, and and as, you, as you jumped in the car, the bus, the plane, the train, um, you just decided, hey, we're just going to go there. Now, those trips are full of adventure and surprises, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with those trips. But also, have you, have you ever traveled before somewhere, and before you left, there was a family member, there was a dear friend, there was a maybe even a stranger at the gas station as you are um, loading up and preparing to go, who, in hearing about where you're going, said, oh, you're going to whatever the place is. Well, I know a few good places that you should go at once you get there. You know, some trips are better when, you're, when, you, when you just go for the adventure of it all blind and, and, and not a care in the world. But trips can be made really fun when you get a few landmarks before you get there. And when you get a few um, points of interest, when you get a few restaurants that you should try a few of the local foodie spots. All of a sudden, the trip can be made better. And this morning, I, before we jump back into this journey through Exodus, and, and, and in particular, before we jump into this journey that we're going to take for the next few weeks through the Ten Commandments, I want to be that person for you. I want to be that person that gives you a few points of interest. You know, first, you know, the first 19 chapters of this book have dealt mainly with God's deliverance of Israel. Now we are turning to God's covenant with Israel. And the covenant with Israel is the most memorable section in that covenant is found in the Ten Commandments. That's the area that we all are familiar with. That's the area that we all know. But I want to give you a few landmarks. I want to give you a few points of interest about the Ten Commandments, a few lessons, if you will, so that as we journey through the Ten Commandments for the next few weeks, you will hopefully and prayerfully have a deeper appreciation for the Ten Commandments. First lesson I want to share with you, the Ten, which is what I'm going to call them, the Ten and the Law are an expansion of the two greatest commandments that Jesus communicates to us in the New Testament. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 through 40, if you're familiar with your Bible, you've heard this before. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, love God, love neighbor, 
on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And we see that actually fleshed out in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The first four commandments are mainly associated with loving and honoring God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any grave, uh, craven images of the divine. Don't, don't, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. All of those are there for us in, in the first four. But in the last six, these are commandments mainly associated with loving man. Honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear, bear false witness against your neighbor, don't covet your neighbor's goods. So, so while God establishes over 600 commandments and instructions for Israel, the entire heart of those commandments are summed up in two commandments, love God and love neighbor. And out of those two commandments, they are expanded into 10 commandments. So we reduce 600 to 10 and then 10 to 2. And in examining these, these commandments, what we learn and what we, and what we un, begin to understand and establish, rather, is a feeling for what it means to love God and what it means to love neighbor. This is what the Ten Commandments should show us. The second lesson I want us to learn as we are walking through the Ten Commandments over the next several weeks is that the Ten and the law flow from deliverance not to deliverance. They flow from deliverance, not to deliverance. You know, before God begins to lay out the commandments that he is calling Israel to live by, all 600 of them, he starts with this opening statement in verses 1 and verses 2 of Exodus 20. Many scholars in, this, in, the, in, in these two verses, they rightly point out that these opening words serve as a preamble of sorts to the covenant that God is establishing with his people. In legal terms, a preamble is an introduction in the document, in the, in the master statement that gives you a preview of what's to come or it actually gives you an underlying philosophy of what's to come in the document. So here in these two scriptures, we have the underlying philosophy that is guiding everything that follows as it relates to this covenant document. So this law is being built upon the foundation of the philosophy being outlined in this introductory statement. And what does that statement say? Verse one, it says this, look with me. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the philosophy, the underlying philosophy that, that everything that follows is built upon. This is the motivation and the fuel for everything that follows. In other words, if you were to ask, why does any of this matter to me? Why should we pay attention to it? Why should we actually heed any of it? The answer is in those words, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
The commandments flow from that deliverance, not to that deliverance. In other words, we don't obey to be delivered. Israel's motivation for obedience is not to be delivered. It is because they have been delivered. God has rescued Israel and is declaring them now as his people with his law. Therefore, they are now called to obey his law, obey his standards, obey his ways. Not because they need to be delivered, but because they have been delivered. That's an important distinction that we have to make. This Old Testament principle carries New Testament implications and connections. We obey because we've been saved, not in order that we might be saved. God has set us free from the bondage of sin and brought us out of the grave. So in response, we walk in obedience to him. Pastor um, Tony Marita says that God's, people's, God's people desire to do God's will because they have already been saved, not to earn their salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, now that I have received this death that was, that was, that, that, that was performed on my behalf, now I live for him in light of that death. Out of the gratitude that comes from our deliverance should come a pursuit and a desire for obedience, which means that absent of that desire to obey or the absence of that desire to obey comes either as a result of us not fully understanding our deliverance or us actually not being delivered. You know, we carry the potential to cheapen rich gospel truths like we're saved by grace alone when we use them as reasons for us not to pursue obedience to God. We typically remember the first portion of Paul's famous words in Ephesians chapter 2. The words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we typically remember those words, or those, those are the words that are most recorded on our hearts. But verse 10 says this, and it's very important, just, just as important. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You received deliverance from bondage to enjoy the kind of freedom in Christ that leads to obedience to his commandments. Paul tells his young apprentice Titus in Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace has appeared and brought salvation, but that's not all it brings. It brings training 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, delivered in order that we might obey. Grace came apart from obedience in order that you may give it, be given what it takes to pursue obedience. You didn't need obedience to be delivered, but once deliverance came, God calls us to obedience. Grace came in the midst of our greed in order that we may pursue selfless, selfless living by grace, not in order that we might continue in greed. Grace came in the midst of our sexual immorality in order that we might pursue holiness in our body by grace, not in order that we might continue in sexual immorality. Grace came in the midst of our arrogance in order that we might pursue humility by grace. Grace came in the midst of our lying, in the midst of our dishonesty at home and on our job or in our social lives in order that we may pursue an honest life by grace. Grace came in the midst of our anger and our hatred and our unforgiveness towards those who were made in the image and likeness of God like us in order that we may pursue peace, love, forgiveness with those same people by grace. The Ten Commandments are intended to remind us that deliverance came by grace, not for us to return back to bondage but rather to life, to a life of obedience that demonstrates the new freedom that has come to us. Here's another lesson that you should learn and think about as you are walking through the Ten Commandments for the next few weeks with us. The Ten and the law reveals the character of God. It reveals the character of God. They point to God. Remember the, remember the, the flows, uh, or, or remember, remember this declaration and the flow of this declaration. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, God is establishing a law with his people that reflects his nature and his character. The law isn't just something that God gives us for kicks because he just wants to see if we can do it or not. No, the commandments he issues flow from who he actually is. This shouldn't be surprising when you think about how laws are forged in most countries and in most nations. What a nation will outlaw and what a nation will enforce typically says something about the character of the nation. One nation may write lots of laws on the books about child labor because they view children as precious and fragile and in need of care and in need of oversight. And, and another nation may not say much about child labor at all because it possibly doesn't have the same beliefs about a child's fragility because it's far more desperate and needs the children to work. Or even worse, it could simply just not value the well-being of children. But it says something about the nation, the laws that they create. Regardless of the reasons, the presence of the laws and the absence of the laws regarding those children say something about how the nation views those children. The same can be said about our nation. Our laws and our policies toward the vulnerable, the, our laws and policies toward the wealthy and the poor, the, the vocal and the voiceless, such as the unborn, the immigrant and the refugee, the orphan and the widow, the privileged and the underprivileged, the laws that we establish 
And more importantly, the way we orchestrate how those laws play out gives us a glimpse into the character of our nation. In the same way, what God has allowed and outlawed in the commandments give us a glimpse into his character. We learn something about the character of God when we learn about God's law. For example, God tells Moses in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Because the Lord will not shake, share his glory with an imposter. He gives the commandment for us not to bow down to such imposters. We learn something about God in that commandment, that he will not share his glory with any other person or thing that presents itself as God. When we look at the fourth commandment, we also learn something about God. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the, is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And then he says this, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. We learn that because the Lord is a God who works and rests, he gives the commandment to his covenant people to work and rest. We learn something about God. Finally, when we look at the sixth commandment, we learn something about God as well. You shall not murder because the Lord is the author and finisher of life. We cannot assume his role by taking life at our leisure. As we look at the law, we learn that God holds life in high regard. So the law is not just given to us as a set of random instructions for us to follow because God is bored. No, they reveal and so the layers and the dimensions of the unique character and the nature of God who has delivered us. So as we're walking through this together, you need to be thinking about what does this law say about the God that I serve? Another lesson I want you to take on this journey with you. The 10 in the law come from one with absolute authority, absolute power and absolute ownership of our lives. The 10 in the law come from one who has absolute authority, absolute power, and absolute ownership over our lives. This preamble that we're reading in verses one and two is intended to serve as a reminder that the law Moses is preparing to receive is coming from one with absolute power, authority, and ownership. You know, it's been a while since we've been in Exodus, so let me uh, try to recap real quickly the scene that we find ourselves in here as the commandments are coming forth. This moment in chapter 20 is a continuation from chapter 19. And in chapter 19, God, we find God flexing, showing, showing Moses and Israel his holiness, his glory, his power. All of that was on full display atop Mount Sinai, revealing that he was not just a God, but that he was the God and that he was mighty and powerful to save. Chapter 19, verse 16 describes this scene for us. There's thunder and there's lightning. 
thick clouds and smoke are surrounding the mountain and a loud trumpet blast continues to grow increasingly louder. And as Moses spoke to God, God spoke back and answered, the Bible says, in thunder. The scene was so heavy that they had to block the people from coming up the mountain because the presence of God would have killed them. This is the context that Israel finds themselves in. And it's here that we get verses 1 and verses 2. I am the Lord your God. And, I'm sorry, verse 1. And God spoke all these things saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Of course, verse 1 is, is it, 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 can, it, can, it can be understandable if you pass, it, pass over it too quickly like I just did, but we shouldn't because God spoke all these words. What words? The words of the covenant, the words of the ten. And this moment of God speaking in and of itself was a demonstration of absolute power and authority. Remember how God is speaking. I just gave you the information concerning how he's speaking with thunder. This isn't God on top of Mount Sinai. Hey, Moses. Hey, guys. How's everybody doing? These commandments are being spoken in thunder. The scene is so wild that, that, that after Moses gets the 10, we get this moment from him and as he's speaking with the people in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 19, oh, chapter 20. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You see, God gives Moses the 10, and how do the people respond? Listen, Moses, if God has a message for us, just ask the Lord to relay it to us through you. Because what we are hearing and what we are seeing is that if he speaks to us, we will die. Even in the moment where the commandments are being delivered, it is such a weighty, glory-filled, horrifying moment that every, everyone knows that the one who is speaking these commandments carries absolute power and authority. And pay attention to how Moses responds to them in chapter 20, verse 20. He says, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. God has come and he is delivering this message in this way so that there is no confusion about the one who is commanding you and that when he speaks, you will obey. And what are the first words that come forth out of this glorious, powerful God with all authority, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Not one God among many, not one optional God that if you don't prefer, you can choose another. No, these commandments are coming from the one and only true God. This is, this is important when we consider the cultural context that we find Israel 
in and that they've spent the last several hundred years in. The culture around them is very polytheistic, meaning most of the people around them believe in the ideal and the concepts that there are many gods for them to worship and many gods for them to appease. However, if you recall a few months ago, we talked about how the plagues in Egypt in many ways served as a moment for God to flex on all the inferior phony gods. While the Egyptians had a God for rain, a God for agriculture, a God for the river and so forth and so on, Israel's God was flexing and showing himself powerful or, 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 or authoritative over the river, over the winds, over the rain, over the animals, over the agriculture, over sickness, over disease, over everything in order to show that he stood head and shoulders above all pagan idols. So, so here we have him establishing covenant with Israel and starting this covenant with the declaration of this truth. I am the Lord, your God, basically saying I am the God with the authority to call you to obedience. In other words, before, you even, before I even lay out the instruction, before I even lay out the commandments, understand that I carry the weight and the power to call you to this obedience. You know, our culture tends to bend in both directions. Depending on who you talk to, on one side, we are somewhat like Egypt with all of these gods that we tell ourselves we serve and worship, and no matter which one we choose, the outcome will all be the same. So pick one. All roads lead to heaven type of mentality. Do, do, you know, do whatever you want to do. Choose whatever you want to choose. When it's all said and done, we're all good. And then on the flip side in our culture, you have people making the claim that no road leads to heaven. Because no road leads to God because there is no God. So you are God. Be your own God. The Lord is blowing both of these notions up here. He is not saying that there is a God. He is saying that he is that God, the only God. And thus, when he speaks, we should listen. However, he is not just the God. He is your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You belong to me because I delivered you. So this call from obedience comes from this place that says, I am your God. Remember who I am, remember what I've done, but remember in particular who I am to you. Remember in particular what I've done for you. And as you remember, obey my commandments. You know, our decision to obey is an announcement to the watching world, whether we know it or not. It's an announcement to the watching world that we know who he is, but we also know who we belong to. How we live and how we act communicates to the watching world who we believe we belong to. When we live mostly in disregard for his commandments, we are declaring I don't have to listen to him because he doesn't own me. When we treat his instructions to us as optional, we are boldly declaring to the world, he has no claim to my life. When we pick and choose the commandments that we want to obey, no fornication, oh, okay, I can do that. 
Don't cuss the server out at Waffle House. Oh, yeah, man, you know, uh, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just human. No, you know, what we're saying is, Lord, you don't have any authority over my life in that area. So I'll choose to obey it if I want to. Now, I'm not saying we don't stumble in our obedience. But what I'm saying is the idea that we don't even try to obey some things is a declaration to the watching world and a declaration to our God that you don't have ownership here. This is my spot. But fam, that's not true. Jesus Christ is your Savior, but he is also your Lord. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In May of 1987, Ted Koppel, the famous ABC News anchor, um, addressed the graduating class at Duke University using the Ten Commandments to make a point about truth. He said, our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted, undiluted. In its purest form, Truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It is a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the 10 suggestions. They are commandments. And they are not were commandments. The sheer brilliance of the 10 commandments is that they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then or now, but for all of time, end quote. Not the 10 suggestions, saints. The God of the universe has defined timeless truth and communicated that truth to us. It was not given for us just to casually follow when we consider it convenient. It was given to us to obey. And that is why he begins the delivery of those truths with the words, I am the Lord, your God. One, thing I, one last thing I want you to look at. One, thing, one last thing I want you to take with you on this journey, rather, is our need for a Savior. When you, look at, when you look at this law, the law gives us a glimpse into the character of God, but it also gives us a glimpse into our own character. As we look deeper into this law, we will see how difficult it is to actually follow it and obey it perfectly. Indeed, we will realize that we cannot. We will learn that, that, that it is not only revealing God's nature, but it's revealing our own. We see just how far the gap, uh, the gap is between God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. We begin to get a glimpse of just how holy God is and how other God is and how unholy and common we are. The law reveals God's character, but it also viciously and relentlessly exposes ours. In it, we see, we see our inability to save ourselves because we aren't able to perfectly obey this law. In it, we see our need for a deliverer. Because if we can't save ourselves, somebody has to come and save us. In Romans chapter 7, the Bible says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law shows us our sin. 
It shows us that we have not perfectly obeyed. It shows us that we have seen things that other people possess and that we've grown bitter because we couldn't have those things and we couldn't afford those things. It shows us that we have at times, more often than we care to admit, made idols in our hearts and found satisfaction in things outside of the God who has delivered us or found ultimate satisfaction. It shows us that we've disrespected our guardians and our elders and parents more often than we care to admit. And on top of that, the Lord actually ups the standards when we read later in the Gospels. We hear about hatred being in your heart and hatred being akin to murder, that if you've hated your brother, you've murdered him. We hear about lust living in our hearts and that that lust is like committing adultery. And in the law, we find not simply a standard for our obedience and ethic for how we as the community should, Christian community should live, but we also find a mirror exposing every single horrible flaw in us, every sin that we've ever committed, every wayward thought that we've ever thought. In the law, we see that we are not able to measure up. But the joy we have is in the next chapter of Romans when we read verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Saints, because you and I weren't able to perfectly obey this awesome and powerful God from the depths of his love for us and the abundance of grace stored up for us has sent one who did perfectly obey. Jesus Christ did what the law could not do. He conquered sin. And so as we go through the commandments, as we take this journey, we should be reminded over and over and over again of my desperate need for this Savior. And I should be reminded over and over and over again that if I have yet to turn my life over to this Savior, that I must turn my life over to this Savior. I must submit my life to him. I must trust him by faith. I must turn from my way of living, turn from my sin, repent, and embrace him and embrace his way in order that I might be delivered, in order that I might receive eternal life, in order that I might become his own. This is what I'm praying over the next several weeks, the Lord will remind us of as we walk together. These little markers on our journey. May he do it in accordance to his power and in accordance to his will. Let's pray. God, we love you so much.